When the Bureau of Labor Statistics released the April unemployment figures in the United States, the number didn't come as a surprise, but it was still a stunning one. 14.7% of the workforce was officially unemployed, a figure that hadn't been seen since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Now, because of how the Bureau classifies someone as unemployed, the real number is likely closer to 20%. Many economists believe that the number should drop quickly once the coronavirus pandemic is under control and businesses reopen. Others say that unemployment will remain stubbornly high for some time to come. This calls into question a V-shaped recovery where the economy roars back to previous levels of output. That leaves the manufacturing picture in the United States murky at best. Over a million manufacturing jobs were lost in April, an area of the economy that had been weakening even before the pandemic struck. If we are facing a slow recovery, what does this mean for manufacturers trying to get back on their feet? Will their customers still be there? Will they be able to hire back those who were laid off? Should they put digital transformation plans on hold and save their money? Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, the only podcast dealing with Salesforce technology in the manufacturing sector. Ahead of the Curve is produced by Jaron, a top Salesforce consulting and implementation partner. I'm Chris Henry. Some months ago, we spoke with Tim Gollin, the former global CEO of Arc International, the French glass and tableware company known around the world. Tim took over at ARC in 2015 with the intention of modernizing the firm, eliminating its growing debt, and returning ARC to its previous levels of global success. Part of his plan involved implementing Salesforce CRM across the company's global platform. He's led the restructuring of other companies during his career as a private equity partner. He knows manufacturing inside out. So we turn to Tim once more for his assessment of the industry today and its prospects for the future in a post-pandemic world. What kind of global manufacturing landscape lies ahead? Well, it's really hard to say. On the one hand, you see huge change happening in how people go to work and how people do their work. On the other hand, you see changes in demand patterns because people can't get out to buy stuff that they're used to buying. But you kind of have to say that nothing's going to change quite as quickly as anybody thinks because change is hard, because people aren't there to make change happen, and because it's not obvious that all of the things that would tend to drive significant change in the manufacturing landscape will actually occur as rapidly as people might expect for a variety of reasons. Let's start with the idea that people are unemployed. So huge transformation in manufacturing is going to be relatively expensive to do and take time, And meanwhile, you can get relatively inexpensive labor back to the workforce to do a lot of the tasks that you might have thought about automating. So that's one thing that may be different. Second, the social distancing issues that people are worried about may not turn out to be as easily resolved with automation as people would like to think because developing replacement technologies and innovation in the workplace takes time, takes proximity, and takes a significant amount of engagement with industrial processes themselves in order to understand what needs to be done. There is a theory that automation is going to make great headway in the aftermath of the pandemic for safety reasons, as much as to reduce labor costs. But if Tim is right, 
that there will be an abundance of labor waiting to be re-employed, we'll likely see the sort of slow wage growth that characterized the last recovery from the Great Recession. Not good news for the consumer or the U.S. economy, which depends heavily on consumerism. It also means that demand could remain weak for some time. Yes, I think it really depends what kind of demand you're talking about. You're not going to see people being able to replace all the lattes that they didn't drink during the month, two months, six months of pandemic. You're not going to see people being able to replace their haircuts. You may not be able to see people replacing the manufactured goods that they would have bought had they not had this time out. What you may see is a change in what people's needs are because they're going to get used to having less of everything. So it's not obvious that there's going to be a huge renaissance in demand. You'll have some increase in demand, but nobody can really predict exactly what. And as we saw after the Great Depression in the U.S., what it took to kickstart demand was really a lot of destruction, which resulted from war, which hopefully we won't have here. It's hard to anticipate exactly what that landscape is going to look like here in the U.S. after we get through the initial kind of restocking mode of people getting stuff back in stores and resuming normal patterns of consumption, buying things that got put off or delayed. Are you going to have huge change in how you go to work and what you do? Yes, but probably it's going to take a little bit longer than, you know, kind of like the day back to work, you say, let's put in IoT devices. It's going to be something more nuanced, I believe, and will have to do to some extent with people's experiences of what they were able to go without during the pandemic and also how they want to change the way they work post-pandemic. One of the things that we're doing right now, you and I, is we're having this chat over Zoom. I'm working in areas in, in, in the healthcare industry where you see a huge amount of change going on with people moving to telehealth and similar distance engagement. That's going to change dramatically how people interact in business, but it's not clear how much it's going to change how you interact on the, on the shop floor and in manufacturing. So what do you think the earliest challenges will be for management then in, in the manufacturing sector? Well, you have the normal challenges of making your, your team feel, your workforce feel, engaged, belonging, safe. All of the things that you always have in, as, as a manager in dealing with recovery from crisis and a recovery from difficulty. So the first thing you're going to see is not, I believe, a rush to find ways to replace people in the, in the workforce, but rather a, a way to make people feel secure and needed and safe. And so what I would expect initially is a huge emphasis on safety and ways of engaging in the workforce that keep people safe in a variety of ways, whether it's by using distance and video and communication to engage with each other and reducing the number of people in necessary contact inside an organization, or it's simply by rethinking the number of people you need on the shop floor at any given time in order to execute specific tasks. Those kinds of things are going to obviously require lots of interaction and discussion between people in a workforce and management teams that are supporting that workforce. And smart managements are going to be very engaged with their teams and with their workforce in thinking through these issues and trying to find ways to make the workplace safer for employees and for customers and for suppliers and for all of the stakeholders in their business so that they can avoid future disruptions and, of course, take care of the health and welfare of people who are form part of the value-added system that we call manufacturing. 
With so much focus and vigilance around safety on the factory floor and elsewhere in an organization, along with the energy that must be devoted to ensure the business survives, failing to look after the customer could be the net result. But Tim doesn't see this as an issue. Well, customers are going to insist on a lot of this themselves in the same way that you saw in the last 15 or 20 years. Customers increasingly demand that their suppliers are people who, companies, which take care of the environment or good stewards of the environment or good stewards of employees or good stewards of shareholder money. This will be another axis of concern. How are you as an employer taking care of your employees and your stakeholders? Because we as a customer don't want to buy from companies that aren't mindful of those facts. Why? Well, certainly for social reasons, because you know, socially it's a good thing to buy for, to do business with people who take care of their stakeholders. But also because from a supply consistency point of view, it's important to make sure that we're doing business with people who have sustainable businesses. And companies that have safety plans in place for their employees and are thinking about ways to keep their stakeholders safe are companies that are going to have are going to be more viable when another supply disruption or another COVID-19 comes around and creates chaos in the workplace. So part of this is going to be all about contingency planning making sure that good suppliers are good contingency planners. And that means that any decent manufacturer will have to think about ways to reassure his or her customers that those factors are being addressed in the workplace. I'd expect to see a lot of manufacturers going to their customers and saying, well, we may be a little bit more expensive, but that's because we're doing A, B, C, and D to ensure that we've got a sustainable manufacturing model, which will survive this kind of event. And we have contingency plans And we have ways that we can work through crises like these, which will allow us to ensure that we can remain compliant, healthy uh, suppliers and profitable. When the pandemic swept across the globe, supply chains began to collapse quickly. That triggered a great deal of discussion about shortening supply chains or repatriating them as inventories began to run dry and manufacturers started to shut down. What are the ramifications of restructuring a supply chain? I think there's going to be a lot of talk about it. And there's a lot of uh, politicization of the globalization of the supply chain. But you have to remember, supply chains globalize or extend for good economic reasons, not because it's inefficient or because people are are actually seeking to be globalists. People buy stuff from other places because it's cheaper or better value or a better place to do it or the supplier is a better supplier. And the length of the supply chain usually has a lot more to do with the time it takes a good supplier to produce than it does with transportation time. Transportation times today are extremely predictable from pretty much all over the world to any other point. Predictability of transportation typically makes the length of the supply chain less of an issue than the time required, let's say, for tooling up a new product, missing, uh, m- missing a production run because of quality issues, screwing something up in the workplace because you didn't have enough raw material. These kinds of things which link more to competency within the factory, within the supplier, tend to impact the supply chain a whole lot more than anything else. When we saw the supply chains break from China to the US, it wasn't because freight didn't work. It was because people were sick in factories in China. If you said people sick in factories in Indiana, same impact, same consequence. So you'd probably look today and say, well, there are a whole lot more people sick in the U.S. than there are in China. And in fact, if you were depending on an American supply chain, it's not clear to me that that would be a whole lot better than what we have from China. What the Chinese had 
was a shutdown for some 45 to 60 days where they put people on quarantine. They shut down facilities. Supply chains did get interrupted. Inventories did get run down. But the world didn't come to an end. And when they were able to recover from, the, from quarantine and go back to work, they were able to replenish the supply chains efficiently because they're great manufacturers. And of course, there are plenty of issues between the US and China in terms of trade. These are political issues. But in terms of the competency of suppliers, there's not really going to be a lot of easy substitutions to be made because one supplier is closer than another. The substitutions which will be made will be made much more on the basis of the sustainability and the competency of the supplier to meet unforeseen disruptions than anything else, in my view. When the Chinese economy opened up following the country's extensive lockdown, many in the West watched to see how quickly the Chinese consumer would begin spending again. As in the United States, the consumer in China makes up a great deal of the nation's GDP. But Chinese citizens have been slow to return to the stores, the restaurants, and the resorts. Demand remains weak. Is it possible for the manufacturing industry in the United States to somehow regenerate demand? Tim doesn't think so. I don't really think so. I think that the reality is consumers will feel comfortable when they feel comfortable. And it's entirely expected that consumers are going to feel uneasy for a while after recovery starts taking hold. Why is that? Well, you've just seen a bunch of people die, a bunch of people get sick, a bunch of people get shut into their houses for extended periods of time, things that we haven't seen in the world in the last hundred years. And of course, it shakes people up. And of course, it'll take some time to return to normal. But the underlying theme should be people's expectations of availability of goods hasn't really changed. Yes, now they know that you might need to buy flour if there's a pandemic. But they haven't really changed their expectation of you know, how frequently they want to change their phone or how often they want a new TV. These are things that, and consumer buying patterns, which have taken years to develop. The world's a pretty big place. Economically, it's a pretty big place. Sure, you'll see some pushback for some period of time before consumer confidence recovers and demand begins to pick up where we'd all like to see it. But this isn't necessarily devastating. It's going to take some time for supply to get back in sync and to function well and for goods to be available more generally. This is a shock to the system. It takes time to recover. And I think we have to be patient in our expectation that everything is going to snap back to normal immediately. But there's no reason that the underlying consumer demand or B2B demand should change markedly once the world gets back to even track. The question is how long that will take. And of course, the predictions are anywhere from months to years. Mm. And I think that depends on how governments react to, uh, in their own way in each region, to the challenges presented by COVID-19. The coronavirus pandemic struck at a time when many manufacturers were implementing digital transformation plans in their organizations. The price tag for transforming digitally varies, of course, depending on the extent of the transformation. The question facing manufacturers right now is whether to continue with those plans and their associated costs or put them on hold. I think you can't answer those questions in abstract terms. The question is, what do you need to do as a manufacturer in order to be able to run your business well? And of course, running any business, especially manufacturing business, means constant adaptation to the demands of the marketplace and to the operating environment you exist in. So if you can't get your sales techs out to go and visit customers, what you're doing is you're having them engage on video. 
if you need to do diagnosis of something that's going wrong in the factory and your maintenance techs can't come in because they're uh, sheltered at home, you can get them on video to consult with the people who are in the factory and who can benefit. So I tend to think what's going to happen is you'll see a lot more multi-skilling of the people who are working inside businesses, much more sharing of knowledge, and a real push to make sure that it's easier for people to participate in a wider variety of tasks, creating more multi-skilled people, which in the long run is also what you need in order to make people more valuable and pay them better, which is one of the objectives of any digital transformation in any uh, sector of uh, manufacturing. And as that happens, what I, I believe you'll see is kind of pragmatic implementation of bits and pieces of technology in order to support what was already there as a trend towards uh, digital transformation. In other words, you're not going to go and do a digital transformation project for the sake of doing digital transformation. You're going to go and say to your teams, what do you need to do your jobs better? And this is a theme that you and I've talked about before. How do you use technology to support the business needs of your manufacturing teams, the business needs of your enterprise, rather than let the technology try and drive the change itself. And I think what you'll see in times like these is that people reach for technologies which are helpful. We never dreamed a few years ago, or even six months ago, that video chat would be so overwhelmingly adapted, uh, adopted by so many people for so many different purposes. And yet this technology, which has been around for a while, is now sort of the prevalent way that people are interacting whether it's families, whether it's businesses, whether it's sales, uh, sales experiences, whether it's conferences, whether it's knowledge sharing, this is going to transform how people do businesses inside factories because people will start saying, well, I can just act, ask the guy on line three with video chat what he's doing with his process and I don't need to do it. Uh, I don't need to walk over there because he can show me with his, with his phone. So you'll find lots of kind of basic adaptation where people use the technologies that they're familiar with in order to drive change in the workplace. And one of the ways that you can make this more effective is by finding ways from a management point of view to support it rather than fight it. And doing that, I think, involves really engaging the people who are out there in the workplace, finding out what their needs are, and helping develop processes which standardize the best practices they've got in order to help them do things better. Video conferencing has certainly seen a dramatic increase since quarantines and stay-at-home orders were put in place. And as Tim says, it's being used in ways never considered before. For example, Network TV has made tremendous use of products like Zoom, Microsoft Teams and other similar technologies. Morning shows and late-night talk shows are being produced with these technologies on a daily basis. Musicians are hosting live shows on the internet and there have been a number of people who've created live events around just being at home. If video is having this kind of impact across mainstream and social media, it's bound to have an impact, perhaps a lasting one, on airline business travel, as well as the enormous aviation manufacturing sector. That's true. And you can certainly see that as people find that they can do stuff by video that they used to do in person, and that video becomes uh, the new normal. And Social expectations are no longer that you show up for a meeting, but you can do it by video and it's not a big deal, which is, you know, a big part of it. Like the convention is that in order to sell something to somebody, you have to show up uh, and kiss his ring and that's removed because you can't do it right now. Then when it comes back, it's not, it's not as if people are going to return to that. You know, 
Same thing that happened with formal dress in the workplace. Once it starts getting to jeans, it's not like somebody says one day, I think tomorrow's going to be a suit and tie day. And the same kinds of things I think are going to happen here. As communication becomes more informal and less programmed and less more continuous and less uh, batch and queue, you know, meetings, meetings operate in the same way as a lot of stuff in factories. Typically, you would have kind of gating meetings, which would happen at fairly extended periods of time to mark the beginning and end of a project between two companies. Today, what you may find is that team building happens more naturally between businesses because they can communicate in a more fluid and more natural way and have continuous development in ways that you've seen for a long time in the software industry. I think that may well extend to other parts of the uh, workplace, and particularly into manufacturing, where, as I said, you, you'll start discovering that people on the shop floor are going to be able to communicate with their customers more effectively. And they'll do that by video rather than needing the formalization of a boss approval to go out and visit the customer in person in his or her place of business. So yeah, I I certainly agree that the likelihood of slippage in business travel is huge because people are now accepting that you can do a lot of this stuff by video. But this was already a trend. Mm -hmm. And while COVID-19 has certainly accelerated in a huge way, the growth of these video technologies and the growing informality of communication in the workplace, these are themes that have been around for a while. What's happening now is it's accelerating because of need. And I certainly agree with you that it's unlikely to snap back to kind of a pre-COVID-19 world where uh, business travel was mandatory. And you'll see lots and lots of stuff moving to video. As we reach what some refer to as the end of the beginning, The world still faces an ongoing struggle with the coronavirus. People are being changed in ways we haven't fully grasped yet. But there's no doubt that everything we do going forward is going to be cast in a different light. The future is going to be changed. We just don't know how yet. One thing that Tim is certain of is that the role of technology in manufacturing will continue to evolve. What you hope is that people can find ways to work more safely, more productively, have more fun in their work, and do stuff that's more valuable to them and to their customers. And the way you do that is by finding the right tools to make that possible, whether those are digital tools, which are increasingly the tools of choice. I mean, a lathe tends to be a lathe. So if you want to run a lathe better, you're typically going to use digital tools or statistical tools to make it better. And you're going to find ways to use tools like machine learning to try and augment the experiences and information that people have at hand when they need to make decisions in the, in, in the shop floor. Again, the increasing availability of data flow, whether it's video, whether it's just statistical data, and the increasing ability to analyze that in useful ways is what's really going to provide the toolbox of the next 25 years for manufacturers. So one of the things I hope is that the lessons that come out of COVID-19, will, which really force people in a very kind of Toyota 1947 way, to, to make do with less, this experience of learning how to make do with less also tells you what's really important and what you really need. And the lessons that we're going to come out of this, that are going to come out of this are the things that we really need, the ability to cooperate with each other, and the ability to find ways to share information, share knowledge between different areas of a business, between customers and suppliers, between end users and uh, producers. And by going through this terrible experience where people have been scared, where people have lost their lives, where people have been sick, and coming out the other end, we're going to have a pretty good sense of what's important 
And hopefully that'll allow all of us to gain new resolve in figuring out ways to create value in whatever it is we do and make sure that that value is produced efficiently and with the best consequence for our customers and our other stakeholders. You've been listening to Ahead of the Curve, produced by Gerents in cooperation with Salesforce. Our thanks to Tim Gollan, former global CEO of ARC International, for his thoughts and insights into manufacturing at this present and troubling time. Technical producer on Ahead of the Curve is Dave Grine from the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto. I'm Chris Henry. Stay safe and thank you for listening. <laughs>